0: Lord, we thank you that you've told us your word uh, never goes out void. It always accomplishes what you uh, have ordained, what you want to accomplish. And we're asking, Lord, that you would do that right now in our lives, our families, our church, that you would have your way with us. And uh, so meet us now. Open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to receive what you have for us today, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So reads the first line of Leo Tolstoy's famous novel, Anna Karenina, and I suspect that there are many here today who know something about the unique heartaches of an unhappy family. Today we look through the window of the Bible into a very unhappy family. Unhappy in its own way and yet also unhappy in ways that almost everyone can relate to. We're well into our sermon series on lessons from Jacob's journey with God that we're calling a disciples life, the blessing and the limp, because we get both, the blessing and the limp, when we walk with God. I've entitled uh, today's message, Our Messy Family. I hope you won't be too insulted by that. It's not your messy family, it's our messy family. And we're going to be looking at Jacob's messy family, but we'll be seeing our own messy family too, our family at home and our family here at church. So I want to remind you of our church vision, which you see on the front of your bulletin every Sunday. And that vision, by God's grace, is to be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus. In some ways, we are all broken alike, but we are also broken in our own way. And this means our life together is always going to have some messiness to it as we, the broken, get on the road together. And we're in the process of being made whole and becoming a thriving family in Jesus. Not a perfect family, but a thriving family, a messy family at the same time, until we reach our heavenly home where all the messes will be gone. God will have cleaned up all the mess. And what a day that's going to be. So, our messy family, Jacob's messy family. Last week, we saw how Jacob was tricked by Laban, his uncle, into marrying two sisters, Rachel, whom Jacob loved, and Leah, whom he did not. In today's text, the rivalry and the subsequent hatred between these two sisters plays out before us. This is what we're going to see in our text: is the sordid stuff you see unfold on reality TV shows, in the soaps, in the telenovelas. You know, it's kind of like some of you remember the Jerry Springer show today. On the Jerry Springer show, battling brides and babies, right? That's what we're. That's where they got it. It's in our text today. So the drama today is set up by two statements in Genesis 29. Verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. So, one wife loved, but childless. The other wife bearing children, but unloved. It's a mess. But what we're going to see today is that God is able to bless despite the mess. God is able to bless despite the mess. Verses 32 through 35. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. I want you to notice the words Leah uses in our text to describe her life. Misery, unloved, unattached. She gives birth to three sons. Their names and their meanings are Reuben, which means surely my husband will love me now. Simeon, which means the Lord heard that I am not loved, and Levi. Now at last, my husband will become attached to me. That's misery. Not even those three sons could win Jacob's love. Babies, but no affection. No concern, no interest, no sharing, no attachment. Leah was always on the outside. But then a remarkable change comes with her fourth son, Judah. Did you notice? Good verse 35. Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. Somehow, she shifts her focus from her husband to her God. From complaints about the marriage to praise for the Lord. This is, of course, the best and healthiest thing she ever could have done in her hard, painful circumstances. And that makes this the high point of the story. She praises the Lord. And you know what happens from here? From the line of this son, Judah, will come someone you might have heard of. The Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah who's going to break every chain. So you know what this means. Jesus, the Christ, is now in the pipeline of God's promise to come and to bless the nations with salvation, as God promised. He comes from the line of Judah. The scene then shifts to the beautiful, self-absorbed Rachel. And I'll warn you, she is not easy to like. When you read the first three verses of Genesis 30, you may get a strange case of deja vu. Follow along, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. Deja vu. Deja vu. Yeah. We've seen this before in the book of Genesis. Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, had been childless for many years, and so had Jacob's mother, Rebecca. So Grandma Sarah, she took matters into her own hands, telling her husband, Abraham, to sleep with her maidservant. Sarah would then call that baby her own. But it all turned out badly, resulting in huge family strife that still divides the Middle East to this day. So there's also Jacob's mother, Rebecca. She was childless for 20 years. But do you remember what the Bible says? It says her husband Isaac prayed, and she became pregnant. So now here we are with the story of Rachel, and we're holding our breath to see which way this childless wife will go, seeking the Lord or taking matters into her own hands. As we read verses 4 through 8, we kind of let out a collective groan. Rachel chooses the path of her grandma Sarah, taking matters into her her own hands. Verse 4, so she gave him, her servant Bilhah, as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. would you like to be named one of those two boys? <laughs> this family is a mess. It's a mess. Too often in life, people don't give God the credit he deserves. But in this case, I think Rachel gave God credit for something she should not have. And here's what I mean. In verse 6, Rachel says, God has vindicated me. That is legal language. What she means is, I took my sister to God's court, and he ruled in my favor. I think I'll name my son God ruled in my favor. When her surrogate mother, Bilhah, has a second son by Jacob, Rachel names him Struggle. That's his name. That's what it means, Struggle. Because as she so graciously puts it, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. You know, she's like, yeah. I don't know about you, but at this point, I feel like pointing out the score. But Rachel, you know your sister has four boys without a surrogate, right? And you have two who don't come from you. But knowing Rachel, that might be a risky thing to say. Um, you might not want to go up against her. She's rough and tough. So the ball is back in Leah's court battling brides and babies. Verses 9 through 12, Leah gives her maidservant to Jacob. See what's happening here. You give your maidservant, I'll give my maidservant. And she soon has another son. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. If you're keeping track, the score is now 6 to 2, with Leah in the lead. A strange turn of events begins in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, during wheat harvest... Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me. She said, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. And you thought coming home from work at the end of the day was stressful sometimes. (laughs) Battling brides and babies. Jacob doesn't know what is going on around here. This is one of those passages when you say, what? I mean, is this really in the Bible? And can we just skip this passage and move on to the next one? Well... No, no, John, we can't. This is the Word of God. What does it mean? So, what's a mandrake? Well, here, take a look. Grasp your mandrake and pull it up. And that is a mandrake, my friends. (laughs) Seriously, what's a mandrake? What is happening in this story? And what is wrong with these people? (laughs) Leah's firstborn son, Reuben, he's out in the fields. He discovers some mandrakes, a rare and strange plant in the nightshade family and therefore related to the potato. Now, the roots of a mandrake look a little bit like a little man, as in that Harry Potter clip, but without all the screeching, right? Mandrakes have long been thought to be an aphrodisiac, an aid to fertility. Since the roots look like a little man, maybe they could bring you a little man. That's the thought. So, when Rachel hears news of the discovery of mandrakes in the field, man, maybe this can help me, she asks Leah if she can have some. She's convinced they might help her get pregnant. And you can hear Leah's anger and pain in her reply in verse 15, as she essentially says, wasn't it enough that you took my man? Now my mandrakes? And then this really bizarre bargain unfolds. Apparently Jacob is not sleeping with Leah anymore at this point, so Rachel trades Jacob to Leah for the night in exchange for the mandrakes. She says to her sister, look, I'll hire Jacob out to you for a night for those mandrakes, which I hope will ultimately help me get pregnant. Deal or no deal? Rachel pimps out her own husband. This family is a mess. Are you with me? (laughs) This family is a mess. The very lonely Leah likes the sound of that deal, so she accepts it. How does this little scheme work out? Not too well. Rachel does not get pregnant, and Leah does, again. Verses 17 through 21, God again gets credit for something he probably shouldn't, and this time from Leah. Verse 17, God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. So Leah says, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. Personally, I rather doubt that. (laughs) She's giving God credit for something that's just a little bit wacky. But we see her heartache immediately reflected again in verse 20. This time, I mean, here we are. This time, my husband will treat me with honor. Back to Rachel. Ten sons have been born at this point. That's ten boys roughhousing around the camp, and not one of hers, one of them is hers biologically. But notice what happens in verses 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. And just like that, Rachel finally has her biological son. She names him Joseph, which means roughly, may I have another? Rachel would eventually have one more son, Benjamin, when she returned to the land of Canaan later with Jacob. Do you remember how she had told Jacob in our text, give me children or I'll die? Well, that's exactly what would happen. While giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel would die. And she would never get to raise that son for whom she had fought so hard and so bitterly. So here's the part of this story that none of us has probably been thinking about this whole time. This is actually a story of how God kept his promise to bless Jacob. This is a story of how God kept his promise to bless Jacob. God had promised Jacob the blessing of a great family, which would ultimately be beyond counting and would bring blessing to the whole world. So this is how God is keeping that promise. It doesn't look the way we thought it would look. But this is the story of a great blessing in disguise, a great blessing that's hidden inside a big mess. The mess in this family was not God's fault. The mess and the misery of this family was due to their deception, jealousy, backbiting, scheming. Sin run amok in their relationships. But the wonder, just think of the wonder in all of this. A true gospel wonder is that God was at work to bless in spite of and in the midst of that mess. Why does he do it that way? I don't know. But I think in part it's so that no glory and no credit for this great blessing could ever be claimed by any of the clearly messed up players in this story. But only by God alone. To God alone be the glory. This is so important for for us in our own lives. We don't know what to do with things like mandrakes and battling brides and babies. Just like we don't know what to do with the actual messiness of our own broken lives. Just like we don't know what to do with a suffering savior and a crown of thorns and nails and a bloody cross. So we always try to sanitize things. We try to sanitize the Bible, our lives, and the work of Christ... But folks, it can't be done. It can't be sanitized. Stop trying to clean it up and dress it up. We need to be honest about the mess. Honest with yourself. Honest with God. Honest with others. Because here's what's at stake. Do you need a big savior to come in and clean up your big mess? Or... Do you just need a little Savior to come in behind you and clean up what you missed? There's a lot at stake here. I need a big Savior. That's the only thing that will help. So it's good to be honest. Sin is ugly. Our broken lives are, are embarrassing. Salvation is bloody. And God gets the glory. You see, that's how it works. And it starts working that way from the very beginning of the Bible. (laughs) I don't get it, but Jesus loves me. (laughs) This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And aren't you glad that Jesus loves you? This you know, for the Bible tells you so. Good news. And this, my friends, is a huge takeaway for us today. That sometimes the life God promises is obscured by our heartaches. It's hidden in the mess. God had long promised to bless Jacob's life. But you have to imagine the years passing. And Jacob must have wondered if God had forgotten his promises. He's not alone. His story is a familiar story because really it's our story too. How do we respond when the God-blessed life is not the life we dreamed of having? I certainly did not dream of having post-polio syndrome, depression, addiction, when I imagined the blessed life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Always remember that behind this story stands the living God, the sovereign Lord, and the promise that God made to Jacob. And that promise would not be shaken by the messiness of his family or ours. Promises of a great legacy, a blessed land, being the root of blessing for the whole earth. But I want you to step back from that and think that we possess even greater promises from God than Jacob did. When Jesus saves us, we are richly blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are adopted by God as our Father, and we have his presence within us, his Holy Spirit. God speaks to us in the Bible, truth and wisdom and grace and Jesus on every page. God forgives us completely through the cross of Christ and speaks to our deepest needs, deepest longings, through the word made flesh to dwell among us. We have a family in the church. We have a new capacity through our forgiveness and our salvation and our new birth to become good and righteous people in Christ. We can think with a new mind, the mind of Christ. We have help with every problem. We are loved at every turn. The sting of death is gone, and we have the certain hope of eternal life. Empty lives are filled We are lame people walking, blind people seeing, captives and criminals set free, the broken made whole, the dead raised to life. We are blessed. Do you know you're blessed in Jesus Christ? We're blessed beyond measure. Maybe you're a little like me sometimes, and you find yourself thinking, don't you just find that the this one blessing you most want that is missing from your life begins to obscure all else that God has given us? You likely know Aaliyah, or maybe Aaliyah yourself. Someone desperate for love from a husband or wife, from a, a dad or mom, from a boyfriend or girlfriend. Always striving, always hoping that That one more accomplishment, one more effort will earn that love so desperately wanted. Or maybe you know a Rachel, or you are a Rachel yourself. Someone who has so much, but but can never get the one thing longed for. Living with a feeling of disgrace or shame that, that comes from being unable to do what everyone else seems able to do. Unfulfilled dreams. There's the man who feels the right job is always jerked away from him. The woman whose every step seems dogged by illness. The man whose father, even on his deathbed, would never say he loved him. The successful woman who wants a child of her own to hold. Uh, The parents whose daughter is deep into a lifestyle they fear will destroy her and keep her from heaven itself. The widow or the widower now living alone. But don't stop there. Here's the other big takeaway for us today. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Christian hymn writer William Cowper, who himself lived much of his Christian life under this dark, heavy cloud of at times suicidal depression, He wrote those words. He he wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. We sang that hymn often in the little country church where I grew up. And we can see three mysterious ways God works his wonders, even in the dark story of a messy family. First mysterious way that God works his wonders is sometimes to place a person exactly where they don't want to be, because it happens to be the most advantageous position for blessing. Take Rachel. Like Sarah and Rebecca before her, Rachel's childlessness was the very place she hated to be, but needed to be. God's blessings are often poured out on those who are at the greatest disadvantage, on those who are the most empty, This barrenness is where God's grace pours in and works wonders. It feels rotten to be in those places, of course. To be sick or childless, lonely or disgraced. But it is in our weakness and need that God best displays his grace. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson through his thorn in the flesh. So listen to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. This is one of my own life verse passages. Paul writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. talking about his thorn in the flesh. But he, that is God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you boasting in your weaknesses so that the strength of God can come to you, and the grace of God can carry you? Second mysterious way that God works his wonders, he takes his time. He takes his time. The story of Rachel and Leah stretches out over long and frustrating, miserable, messy years. God works that way sometimes. Now, his blessings are not always long in coming, but they certainly can be. God won't hurry just because I'm impatient. (laughs) And those long waits, they're never a waste of time. God is always building something special during such times, building character building trust, prying our grip off of things that are of little value, teaching us to look up the staircase, to see his presence and hear his voice from the top. As Psalm 27, verse 14 reminds us, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Finally, third mysterious way that God works his wonders, he listens to you with compassion, even when he is silent and you weren't aware of praying. Have you had that experience? Verse 17, God listened to Leah. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. In both cases, there's no record of these two women praying. God simply heard their groaning and their heartache and their misery. And so it is for us as well. You pray and pray and pray and nothing. Or so it seems. Other times you weren't aware that you even prayed. But God answers the ache, the longing of your heart in his way, in his time. He hears you. Whether you speak or not. Whether you do what people call praying or not. He hears you. He hears your heart as well as your words. But we do have something that Leah and Rachel lacked. We have the Bible, where God speaks his heart and his will to us, assuring us again and again of his love and his attention. Still, we would like for God to be much more talkative, wouldn't we? To speak clearly into our hearts and minds when we ply him with our prayers. But rest assured, God is listening to you even when you're not actually aware of praying. He hears your groans and your grief. He is a compassionate Father, and He will respond in His good way and His good time. Don't forget the shining moment in this dark story. It's when Leah has her fourth son. When she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Finally, at long last, Leah set her loveless marriage to the side, and she thanked God for what he had given her. She praised God for the way he was keeping his promises. And that's always part of our calling as we walk with God. Even when life gets messy or or miserable, and it drives us to our knees, from our knees, We will praise the God who is with us wherever we find ourselves. Nobody and nothing can take that away from us. The bottom line of this message is clear. God's ability and willingness to bless his people is not determined by the messiness of our lives. And neither is our call to praise him. Praise is truth-telling when all kinds of pain-filled lies are shouting for your attention. Praise is grace embracing when your circumstances are whispering that hope is not for you. Praise is getting your life back to the place of being defined by who God is instead of what your difficulties are. Praise is good medicine for you when you are sick of heart or soul or body. Praise is a ladder to God in a wilderness that just lifts you up to him when all is barren around you. So will we praise a good God when we're in a miserable, messy wilderness? Will we? That's the challenge. Fourteen years ago, last week, uh, I was at the shore on a personal retreat. And I was enjoying some great time with the Lord. It felt kind of like paradise to me. And then the phone rang, and it was my dad, saying, your mother's in the hospital again. Again. And the doctors say, she's not going to make it this time. You better come home. And you know, in an instant, the, that paradise turned into a wilderness. Uh, my mother had lived with lupus since I was 12 years old. She was in and out of remission many times, in and out of the ER many times, on death's doorstep many times. And she and my father had finally come from California to live with us uh, here in Philadelphia just three years earlier. So I drove home from the shore. I met my dad at the hospital. I listened to the doctor say that she really had only a matter of days to live, and there was nothing more they could do. In those few remaining days, there were flashes of paradise in the wilderness. All her children and grandchildren had the time to come and see her and be with her. It was glorious, and it was messy. It was joyful, and it was miserable. Uh, We sang favorite hymns together around her hospital bed as she labored, just labored, to stay with us. And I walked into her room on one of her last days, and she turned to me and said out of the blue, I am awfully fond of you. I am awfully fond of you. I carry that with me now as a precious gift. I was in the room with her when she took her last breath, peacefully, there was no struggle. And she was carried on the wings of angels, those ministering spirits that we've been talking about, traveling up and down the stair, that stairway to heaven that we talked about for our care. She was carried away from this wilderness into the arms of her heavenly father in paradise to the place her savior, Jesus, had prepared for her. There's so much heartache in this life. We all have stories like that. This is a broken world. There's so much disappointment, grief, messiness, misery, and even at times disgrace. But there is always our great God and Savior. He, he is so perfectly trustworthy, compassionate, present, listening. And always in his good and perfect time, there is blessing from the hand of our great God and Savior, who says, I love you, I see you, I hear you, I am with you, and I will bless you. So take this cue from Leah, this time, yes, in this very messy or miserable time in which you may find yourself, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. Amen.